0: Marketing wizards found them. Software engineers found that project manager I could never seem to hire, and found LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, eighty-six percent of small businesses get a qualified candidate within twenty-four hours. Post your first job for free and get started at LinkedIn.com/acquire. That's LinkedIn.com/acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the rest of us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 354. It's titled, The Advantages and Disadvantages Individual Investors Have Relative to Professional Investors. I spent just over 15 years as an institutional investment advisor and capital allocator, including time managing overall portfolios for endowments and foundations in what is known as Outsourced CIO Services, or OCIO. I was our firm's chief portfolio and chief investment strategist. I also co-led a research group that conducted due diligence on asset managers across numerous market segments, including stocks, bonds, real estate, private equity, energy, timber, and hedge funds. I held numerous manager meetings, many at these firms' offices. I've spent a lot of time with asset managers. I've also been an asset manager, but I've also been an individual investor as I stepped away from institutional asset management about a decade ago. There's a difference between being an institutional professional investor and a retail individual investor. There are advantages and disadvantages to each, but there has never been a better time to be an individual investor. Product fees for ETFs and funds have never been lower. ICI reports that in 1996, the average equity mutual fund expense ratio was just over 1%. As of 2020, it had fallen to a half a percent. Expense ratios of target-date mutual funds are 45% lower today than they were in 2008. Morningstar reports that the asset-weighted average expense ratio across all U.S. open-end mutual funds and ETFs has been cut in half over the past two decades. That average asset-weighted expense ratio is now about 0.45%. Commissions are free for many trades on stocks and options. One of the first trades I did back in the early 90s, the commission itself was $40. As an institutional investor, I envied institutions that could trade at one to two cents per share, while we, as retail investors, were paying five to ten dollars per trade. Now it's free. There is a proliferation of ETFs, which provide greater tax efficiency for retail investors. The number of platforms and funds available has exploded. I prefer being an individual investor instead of an institutional asset manager. Much less stress certainly much less travel, and much easier. There are definite advantages individual investors have relative to professional investors, even though professional investors might have access to better tools. There are some advantages to being smaller, to operating on a smaller scale. I was reminded of this when a listener to the show, who is a medical doctor, sent me a research paper he co-authored That was inspired by some of the episodes that we have done on Henry David Thoreau. Episodes 240 and 278, for example. Their paper was titled, The Real Deal, The Stacked Benefits of a Real Mower. By real mower, he's referring to a manual push mower. And he introduced a term I had not heard before called mow lawning. It's a term of actively cutting grass using a real mower, typically faster than your normal pace, in order to get some of the exercise benefits and reduce the amount of time it takes to mow. It's not practical for a professional landscaper, given the lawns they have to cut, to use a manual push mower. But for an individual with just one lawn, you get the health benefits, the cost savings, the environmental benefits, and the satisfaction. Those are stacked benefits of cutting your own lawn with a manual reel mower. Similarly, we can do things as individual investors that are not available to professionals because we operate at a much smaller scale. It's just not practical for a professional investor. Foremost is liquidity. Institutional investors spend a lot of time worrying about can they get in and out of a particular investment without impacting the price. The trades are much larger than the trades that we place as individual investors. That allows us to get into specialty segments of the market, such as closed-end funds, which are notoriously less liquid, but you can buy at significant discounts to their net asset value. We discussed closed-end funds in episode 290, and there's an investment guide to closed-end funds on the Money for the Rest of Us website. The biggest advantage, however, as individual investors, goes to the core as to why we invest. Professionals invest because it's their job. They certainly want to help their clients and support their clients' missions. But at the end of the day, professional asset managers want to grow their firms, gather more assets. That means they don't want to get fired. And in order to not get fired as a professional investor you have to consistently perform better than your peers and their benchmark. The way that you outperform as a professional investor, do better than your peers and your benchmark, is to be correct about your investment theses, at least correct most of the time, about your investment picks, and to construct portfolios that are different from the benchmark you're being measured against. So you can be differentiated from the benchmark And from your peers. That invariably leads to deviations, tracking error, and it can lead to periods of underperformance when your style is out of favor. And when your style is out of favor, you underperform your peers and your benchmark and your clients, many of which have investment committees and a propensity to act, have discussions as to why you're underperforming. Maybe they made a mistake. Maybe this manager isn't skilled. Enough, and that's why the underperformance is there. So there's pressure to terminate underperforming managers. As individual investors, we don't have to compete. We can't get fired as our own advisor. No one is judging us. That gives us a tremendous amount of freedom as investors. It allows us to be much more patient for ideas to work out. We're not having to go to a committee meeting and report why we're underperforming this particular stretch of time. As individual investors, our objective is to save and invest so we have enough to live in retirement. Our objective is not outperform our peers or to not get fired. And in our objective of saving and investing, we get to decide how much enough is. We also get to decide if we want outside help, perhaps by leveraging the strengths of insurance companies like we talked about last week in episode 353. As individual investors, we can experiment and try new things because it's our own money, not our clients' money. I recently opened up a new account at TD Ameritrade to use their thinkorswim trading platform to conduct more experiments with option strategies. I've traded options on and off over the decades, usually not particularly well. But there are still aspects of options that intrigue me. The fact that the expected volatility priced into options is greater than the actual realized volatility. Investors are overpaying to protect from portfolio losses, which means there are potential earnings there from selling that protection in a risk-prudent way. Now, that's a topic for another episode, but it's an example of experiments that we can do with small sums of money as investors as individual investors we can speculate with new etf families i've done episodes for plus members on the ark etf family it's an actively managed etf family last week the sponsor to our show was the simplify family of etfs we can speculate in cryptocurrencies or other strategies without having to convince an entire committee to make a decision Now, perhaps we need to convince our partner about a particular strategy that we're working on. That's much easier than trying to introduce a strategy to an entire committee that may or may not want to pursue it. Now, there are certainly some disadvantages of individual investors. First is being overwhelmed, having too many choices. Institutional investors have an advantage in that they have an investment philosophy an investment process. Endowments and foundations will often have consultants to help them sort through all the available options. We'll discuss some things as individual investors we can do to avoid feeling overwhelmed in a few minutes. Institutional investors have the advantage of access. Endowments and foundations can get access to some of the top-tier managers, the top-tier hedge funds that are closed to retail investors. Institutional investors often have better access to portfolio building tools, valuation data, return data, because those tools can be expensive. Now, there are certainly some free tools out there for individual investors. One of the best I know is Portfolio Visualizer at PortfolioVisualizer.com. I also offer tools on my website for a modest fee for members of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Recently, I've been spending a lot of time negotiating with different vendors to get additional research access and redistribution agreements. I'm just a small-time podcaster, and much of the institutional research and their fees are geared toward big asset managers. Which means every time I try to negotiate a fee, subscribe to a new service, I have to talk them down to a lower price, and they have to make an exception because I don't manage assets. I have some mono portfolios. I do an investment conditions and strategy report, but I certainly don't have the margins nor the profits of an asset manager. It could be challenging as an individual investor to get access to some of those tools. Yet I still think we're better off as an individual investor because our core mission is dramatically different than an institutional investor. We don't have to be right consistently about every decision. We need to keep our mistakes small, but an institutional investor. Even if they make small mistakes, they can get fired because maybe they made money for their client, but if they didn't do as well as their benchmark, then they'll get terminated. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. There's some things that we can do as individual investors to help us, to guide us, so that we make better investment decisions. And I want to introduce what we can do first by sharing about a fabric, a very old Japanese fabric called kasuri. I was reading about it in Suetsu Yunagi's book, The Beauty of Everyday Things. Kasuri was very popular for kimono fabrics in the late 19th century and early part of the 20th century. It's a pattern fabric created with resist dyeing. What resist dyeing is, is you bind up a portion of the fabric or the thread itself. And when you dye it, because it's bound up, that portion doesn't get dyed. Because the dye is blocked access to parts of the fabric, and then the other parts soak up the dye. Tie dyeing is an example of resist dyeing if you've ever tie dyed a shirt. Even when dyeing, the stuff that actually gets exposure to the dye, there's differences in terms of how much dye is able to permeate the thread itself. With kasuri, the operator of the loom, the way that they operate the loom, there could be slight differences. And what that creates with this particular type of textile is the patterns itself end up looking a little blurred, just based on just slight differences, because the edges of the patterns don't align. The word kasuri actually means rubbed, because the pattern in kasuri fabric is smudged. Yanagi in writing about this mentions there's a certain way or procedures used to make this fabric. There's a way to operate the loom. There's a way to set up the resist dyeing. So there are certain parameters for how to go about it. Yet, those parameters allow the freedom of nature itself that creates variation in the production of the textile, which is why it looks blurred, the pattern. He gives the example of an artist that is completely unrestrained in terms of how they go about their art. Somebody that's completely unrestrained sometimes can make beautiful works of art, and sometimes they're not very beautiful. But with kasuri, because there are certain ways you go about it, a standard procedure, it always turns out beautiful, even though there might be some variation. The point being, the constraints, having some parameters, having some procedures, some rules of thumb, allows for the creation of a beautiful piece of fabric. Those same procedures, constraints, and rules of thumb can help us in our investment decision process. I'm reading a book by Daniel Kahneman, Olivier Savoni, and Cass Sunstein called Noise, and they talk about, with human judgments, that there's biases. And a bias is something that is systematically off target. And they give the example of shooting a bow and arrow at a target. There's a bias if the shooter always misses the target. It always goes to the right. At the same time, we can have noise, which is random fluctuations. If the shooter shoots the bow and arrow and it misses the target, but it's not just to the right, it's sort of all over. They're random fluctuations. And in their book, they describe that there are advantages to rules, formulas, and algorithms over the decision-making of humans that are completely unrestricted in their ability to make predictions. And the reason why the predictions are better when using rules or formulas is not because the rules have some type of superior insight, but because they have less noise. They give the example of using a simple rule, and they find that Sometimes just having a few parameters is better than having multiple variables and coming up with rules. And they give the example of a team of researchers that looked at a rule set for helping bail judges face whether they wanted to release a particular defendant or retain them. And the risk of releasing a defendant on bail is the flight risk, and they never show up for the trial. But if they're not a flight risk, Denying bail keeps them in prison needlessly, and there's a cost to that. Certainly, the government just to house the prisoners, and well is the cost of that individual's individual liberty because they haven't even come to trial yet. So they built a model just using two inputs that had shown to be highly predictive of the defendant's likelihood of jumping bail. The one variable was the defendant's age as older people were lower flight risk, and the number of past court dates missed previously. Then the model used those two inputs to create a risk score. When they tested this model against real data, particularly data where judges had complete discretion, they found that the statistical model, this frugal model, was significantly better than virtually all human bail judges in predicting flight risk. Just a simple two-variable model. Having some parameters, it avoided a lot of the bias and a lot of the noise. As individual investors and professional investors, we need rules of thumb. We need parameters to help simplify our investing to make better decisions. Now, we'll always have bias as individual investors, and hopefully those biases help us to make more profitable investments. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. We need to understand what our decision rules are. But certainly, it should help reduce some of the noise and provide more consistency. And that's really what we want as investors. Having a consistent investment process allows for better decisions and better performance over time. And I certainly found that in researching money managers, that that consistency, that discipline over long periods, even if there were a period of underperformance, allowed for better performance over the long term. Now, there are many rules of thumb we could use, and I'll share some of mine, and I'm not suggesting that these are absolutely correct. These are just rules of thumb that I have developed over many years of investing, both professionally and as an individual investor, that have helped guide me so I feel less overwhelmed and make better decisions in investing my personal assets. The first is I favor asset classes rather than individual securities. That allows me greater diversification. It means I don't become overly concentrated in one particular stock. It makes my analysis simpler because I'm not trying to study individual companies and their fortunes, but rather I'm focusing on asset classes and the drivers of those asset class returns. I favor cash flow generating investments, those that pay dividends, interest, and rents over non-income producing assets where the return is completely dependent on whether the investment rises or falls in price. I favor low-cost passive ETFs over active managers, where those managers can't add value. I will use active managers where there is a clear advantage of doing so. I favor regions and asset classes and markets that are cheap or less expensive relative to their averages. Now, in some environments, hardly anything is inexpensive, like we are today. But there are some areas that are much more expensive, like U.S. stocks, which is why I favor non-U.S. stocks, even though I continue to have an allocation to U.S. stocks. I favor currency diversification, non-dollar assets, such as exposure to non-U.S. equities, gold, and cryptocurrencies. I favor owning real things versus digital assets. So I own real estate. I own art. I favor a formal periodic review of valuations in economic conditions and market trends, expected returns. And that formal monthly evaluation process is the time that I make investment decisions or shortly thereafter versus the emotion of watching the markets and making changes day by day or hour by hour. I favor an asset garden approach with a variety of return drivers where I'll adjust my portfolio as conditions change, while being mindful of taxes, fees, and the cost. Now, that's just one way to do an asset allocation. Others favor a strategic asset mix with very specific rules for rebalancing. Finally, I favor experiments, pursuing strategies where I'm going to learn something new. At the same time, I'll avoid speculations where I might not learn anything, I don't just want to make a trade and hope it works out. If I make a trade, I better be learning something from it. And so I'll keep those experiments small as part of learning. But I find just making a trade because I think it might work out, I'm not willing to invest much money in it. And then it's like, well, it's not even worth the time because it won't have a meaningful impact on my portfolio. There needs to be a learning process in order to conduct a portfolio experiment like I'm doing with option strategies. Now, these are just some of my rules of thumb. You might have some that you have found helpful over time. I got a message from a PLUS member the other day, and he's got a PhD in artificial intelligence, works in this area, and was wondering if it's okay for him to use his personal edge to perhaps invest and select individual stocks in the AI arena or use AI to select individual stocks. Absolutely. That would be something that he potentially is very good at, a worthy experiment. So there are so many ways to invest. All I'm saying is that we can reduce that feeling of being overwhelmed, of having too many choices, by putting some constraints in place, some rules of thumb that helps us to make more consistent decisions. In the same way that The makers of kasuri cloth have constraints of the loom and the process that they use to dye, the fabric or the thread as part of the resist-dyeing process. These rules of thumb take time to develop. Investing is a process that you learn over time. But those rules of thumb come together and evolve into an investment philosophy, an investment process. And that's something that all successful institutional investors and asset managers have. They have an investment philosophy, an investment process, a consistent process. They might make tweaks over time, but being able to look at all the various platforms, all the various investments with a framework can be very helpful. That's the reason I wrote my book on investing, to help individuals develop a framework In this case, the framework was 10 questions to ask prior to investing in anything. Those frameworks, philosophy, process help keep our investment mistakes small. And then when we make mistakes, we can learn from them because we had a consistent process and realize, well, this is what we did wrong. Maybe there was a bias there that we need to correct for, or maybe there was too much noise. And that helps us grow as an investor. So you should feel great that you're an individual investor investing In really a golden age of investing where the fees have never been lower, the choices have never been greater, our access to new asset classes, new opportunities has never been greater, but that can also be overwhelming. So we need constraints and rules and a process so that we're not so overwhelmed and that can evolve into a philosophy that helps us be successful over the long term. That then is episode 354. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you'd like to learn more about investing, there's two ways I can help with that. First, consider joining my weekly email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. It's where I share the links to the research that was used to prepare that week's episode. It's also where I share an essay on money, investing, and economy. The newsletter is something I'm really working on improving to make it more valuable to you. And you can sign up for that at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.com. The second way that you can become a better investor is by becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Whether you're just starting to save for retirement, you're nearing retirement, or you're in retirement, Plus Membership has the tools and resources you need to achieve your financial goals and have peace of mind. With Plus Membership, you get access to a proven investment approach and expert portfolio insights delivered in a clear and concise style you can understand. If you'd like to learn more about Money for the Rest of Us Plus, you can do that at moneyfortherestofus.com. We'd love to have you as a member. Everything I've shared in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and economy. Have a great week.